The big guns are coming out ahead of the US Open and it's Ash Barty with her fifth title of the year at Cincinnati and Olympic gold medalist Alexander Zverev goes again and wins the Cincinnati Masters after not even winning a match there previously in his career. It was a big week for many, many big players as we head to Flushing Meadows and we've got plenty to dissect here on Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo, and joining me as he always does and we're just celebrating life really. And Joel Frucci, how are you? Going okay, Val, uh, lockdown aside, but um, yeah, it's a bit of deja vu in in Melbourne town. But anyway, it's okay because uh, the US swing is uh, underway and unlike this time last year, we've got crowds in Canada and the US and it's great to see. Very excited about that. But uh, how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm all right. It does feel like deja vu because last year we were talking about Cincinnati. We were in lockdown and the US Open was impending, and that's exactly what we're doing again. Cincinnati in New York. Well, yes, exactly right. So it's not complete deja vu, but, yeah, it's um, it's very close to it. And, look, it's it's honestly, it's so bizarre, that the fact that we're in this position again, and, um, yeah, it's uh, hopefully we can all come out of this very quickly, um, and hopefully we can just keep pushing as, as far as we as far as we need to go and then um and then go that way and hopefully the vaccination rates can rise. But enough about lockdown, enough about depressing stuff. Let's talk about some positives. And well, Ash Barty Joel, she's uh, uh, there's no superlatives to describe what she was able to do in uh, in Cincinnati this week. Um it didn't drop a set and and the victims that fell to her were just it was it was beyond belief some of the performances that came off the Ash Barty racket. It was Heather Watson in straight sets. It was Victoria Azarenka, the defending champ, 6-love, six 6-2. Six it was Barbara Krejcikova, the French Open champion, 6-2, six 6-4. Six then it was former world number one and multiple Grand Slam winner Angelique Kerber, 6-2, 7-5. And then Jill Teachman, who had a great tournament of from... Um, off the Fantastic. Back of, yeah, she was unbelievable in what she was able to do. Um, we'll go through that in a second, but Barty in the final, 6-3, 6-1. Look, I think Ash has been able to show now that the COVID rankings have worked. And the fact that they were able to protect her number one ranking, although some didn't feel it was fair, I think she's gone and shown that she's by far and away the best player in the world and it is going to take something special, like what Sara Soribes Tormo did in in Tokyo, the Olympics, to actually beat her and knock her off her perch, she's she's there to be beaten, but nobody can really do it. Her game style is just unflappable at the moment. Yeah, no question, Val. And you brought up Sara Sorribes Tormo there in in Tokyo. That was so unlike Ash. Uh, I'm still almost shocked that that actually happened. And that's not to take away anything from uh, SST, but just the way that Ash played was. So unash like, but you know, she's bounced back with, with flying colors, which is really no surprise. Um, she's been through her share of, of adversity not only this year, but in her career generally. And we know that she's capable of, of bouncing back, and she's done it at a brilliant time as well coming into the US Open. So, um, look, I think it's fair to say that the Olympics was just a bit of a blip on uh, on Ash's radar, and um, you know, to, to roar through Cincinnati with uh, with flying colors, yeah, um, back to normal, really. She's looking great for our New York. Yeah, it was really impressive. And yeah, as as her game just, there's no real chinks in her armor at the moment and the way that she's been able to go about her business. And I, I think the match against Azarenka was was the catalyst for the tournament. And when everybody saw what she did to Vika, I think that the realization was there that, geez, that, that was a blip in Tokyo and it was a one-off and she, she's back. And especially after the, the disappointment of what happened on in the clay swing where she couldn't win the French Open because of the injury that hampered her, but she was in such good form leading in. She's won five titles already on the WTA circuit this year. And look, the US Open could be number six, but there's plenty more after that that she can win. And um, she, she's got an ability to put a massive stranglehold on the rankings at the moment and, and really solidify her spot at world number one. And if you do look at the rankings at the moment, it, it's it's pretty stark, the difference between her and Arena Sabalenka, who did move up to world number two this week. Ash is on 10,180 points, Joel. Sabalenka, 7,010. Mm, Even difference. Novak's never had a gap that big. And that says it all. It really does. It's it, it is utter and pure domination. Osaka further back on six 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 six, and Carolina Pliskova rounds out the top four on five five three zero. So there's nearly a five thousand point gap 
between the top four in the world. And I think that's the same. It's not even the same with the men. That's a 3,000-point gap between them. And and Djokovic is a long way ahead. So this is a mightily impressive year that Ash Barty is putting together from from what from the Melbourne Summer Series all the way to now. She's just been um, playing with the utter consistency that we know and love about her. And it's going to take some beating for her. And if you look at the rankings and if you look at the players that are in the field, and we know the WTA, there's a blanket over players that could win a tournament or on any given day. Who is that player that comes out and who's going to be her biggest challenger? Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it, Val? I think um, you've, I still think you've got to look at probably the power players like a Sabalenka, like a Saka, if she's in the right place to compete. Um, I think if if they're on, on the day, then anything's possible. But slightly off, then that's what Ash likes. Um, and then, yeah, you get a bit deeper and, you know, you, you still sort of the same names that are kind of always there, always kind of pushing up, but not quite doing the damage. Um, and to sort of keep it, I guess, on the on the theme of, of Cincinnati, you look at someone like Carolina Pushkova, who was... Um, who was there or thereabouts up to the up in the semifinals? But um, you know, I guess as good as as good as the run was, obviously she ended up going down against Jill Teachman. But um, the previous match, um, which I caught a bit of against uh, Paola Bedosa, she found herself wall up down as well. So, uh, and that's not to actually go and you know sort of pick on Carolina, but you know, I think it's probably those three players because I, I bring her up mainly because she's kind of in the same mold. Um, being that kind of power player, um, and obviously yeah, Wimbledon, Wimbledon final, Joel. She was she was there. She yeah, was well, a yeah, set exactly, away from yeah. it. Well, yeah, exactly. But yeah, look, I think it's probably the players of that kind of that kind of ilk. So look, I think if you look at what's happened, yeah, this year maybe you could probably bundle up the three of them. Um, but yeah, certainly I think Naomi, if she can get herself up and in the right place, um, and Arena, if she can do it um, then and there. This is one that I do want to touch on, Naomi Osaka, and we'll get to her after we chat to a veteran tennis journalist and one of the best in the land, Courtney Walsh, and he's going to join us to chat about all things tennis heading into the US Open, as well as his glorious career at the Australian, which has come to an end. So very excited to chat to him about his favourite tennis moments that he's had covering uh, covering the sport that we so love. But look, it's um, Jill Teachman, still speechless, Joel. Still absolutely speechless at mm. what she was able to achieve this week. And um, I, I just think it's a testament to her character and and how she was able to to perform under in the big matches, really. And to take down Naomi Osaka, then to take... And Serrano Sestay as well, who's a very good player. Bernarda Perra, who's a good young up-and-coming player, beat them in straight sets. Yeah. Then takes down Osaka in three sets in the third round. Then... Belinda Bencic, the Olympic gold medalist in the quarterfinals, Carolina Pliskova in straight sets in the semis as well, and that is a mightily impressive run from uh, from Teachman there. The Swiss tennis just keeps finding them. Yeah, a fantastic run from Jill, um, and I'm not I'm not that surprised that she's been able to put something like this together. I remember watching her at the Melbourne Summer Series, um, of course, at the start of the year when we were fortunate enough. Um, to have such a great festival of, of tennis in uh, in Melbourne. And I remember watching Jill a few times and being really impressed by what she was able to put together. Um, of course, when the actual Australian Open rolled around, she wasn't quite able to sort of replicate that. Um, but I, I remember watching her and, and seeing enough and, and sort of thinking, you know, this is a woman who, and she's still young as well. She's a very young player, Jill Teekman. Um I remember watching her and thinking, this is a player that might have something uh, special in in her locker, and, um, and she's done this um, in Cincinnati to to push into the final. And uh, if we look at the last couple of months, Val, what a great couple of months for, for Swiss women uh, for yeah. Swiss women's tennis. And um, you know, I think it's great that we can say that because um, you know, obviously, we know that um, Belinda Bencic has been around for quite a while, and now she's, I think, really broken through by winning a gold medal. But for so long, it was always, of course, with good reason, about Roger Federer, about Stan Wawrinka on the on the ATP. But now the, the Swiss have a couple of really good women. And, um, of course, Victoria Golubic has always been kind of there or thereabouts, hasn't really done a lot of damage um, titles-wise, let's face it, but she's been a, a pretty good servant to the sport. 
um, thus far. So it's really great to see Belinda and, and Jill sort of uh, doing some damage. And both those players have a, a lot of um, improving they can still do as well. I mean, when you look at them um, in the greater, I guess, context, they're still both very young. So mm. you know, there's, there's still a lot, a lot they can do. Yeah, and a brill- well, look, it was it was very unexpected. She'd lost nine of her previous eleven matches before uh, before the week in Cincinnati. So a brilliant performance from her, and uh, and t- to come out and do that and beat the players that she was able to beat, I think is is um it, it commands the respect of of many many people on tour, and and I think I'm I'm honestly I'm still that speechless that she was able to do it, Joel. And um, if it, I think before we get to the men. The one that I do want to touch on is Kerber. Now, we know what she can do in the US Open, and we'll get to Osaka later. But yeah. semifinals, she's thereabouts. Can she produce some sort of miracle at the US Open and and just say, look, I'm still here. Let's, you know, don't forget me just yet and have a really deep run. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting one, isn't it, isn't it, Val? I'm not going to say no. I'm going to say it's doubtful but I'm not going to rule it out entirely. Um, what I will say, though, is it's just so great to see Angie back up there and competing at the pointy end of tournaments because clearly she's not getting any younger um, on the wrong side of 30, and we know that she had a, a real down period, but it's great to see her come back because um, you know we know that obviously she's been able to produce it when it matters and um and 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 win slams um so she's always going to sort of go down in in uh in uh in folklore and the history of the sport but um just just as a as a person she's just a really likable human being i think um and you always want to see those kind of people just continue persevering so angie is definitely one of those and it's great and last thing on the wta before we do get to courtney walsh now we had the national bank open presented by rogers at uh, in montreal and the winner, none other than Camilla Georgie. Yes. <laughs> How? Where's Silvio? I don't know. But look, she. <laughs> this is the frustrating thing about Camilla Georgie. She can be so damn consistent, or so damn inconsistent, I mean. And then she comes out and does this. I, I just, It just shows how good she can be. It shows. And... I don't know how it happened because I was certainly not expecting it. And it shows that the unexpected, well, the WTA, I think it's 2021 motto will be throw out the script. And because we just don't know what narrative is going to unfold in any given week. She defeated Coco Gauff. She defeated Johanna Conta. She also defeated, oh no, that was, um, sorry. She defeated Petra Kvitova. Gauff defeated Conta. uh, And she defeated um, Nadia Podoroska. Elise Mertens, uh, Jessica Pagula, and Carolina Pliskova to win the title. So absolutely phenomenal week from Camilla Georgie. And hopefully we can finally see that translate into some success at the slams. <laughs> well, now, this is one that I still can't believe, Val. <laughs> I think we're both very shocked. But, yeah. Yeah. Look, I don't know. I'm, Camilla is more one that I'm, I'm kind of thinking this might be a bit of a more of a flash in the pan, to be honest, than sort of something that we can expect more of moving forward, which is unfortunate because she's an interesting player to watch, Camilla. As you said, she's a bit inconsistent. She's a bit quirky and you never really quite know what to expect. So, look, I I actually would quite enjoy it if she could keep putting this kind of form together. But unfortunately, I, I just can't say it. Neither can I, but look, it, it's something fun to think about. It's very fun. And <laughs> look, hopefully it we, is, yeah. we can Most see definitely. her do something along those lines. But before we do get to the men. Sometimes before, maybe good, sometimes maybe shit. <laughs> the old Gattusoism, <laughs> and that is one of the best sound bites you'll ever hear. It's almost as good as Shut Your Fuck Up by Daniel Medvedev. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, it doesn't get much better than that. And Daniel Medvedev is someone that we will talk about after we chat to Courtney Walsh, who's coming right up now. And we do have him now, legendary journalist for the Australian. He's one of the best in the land. His name is Courtney Walsh. And he joins me, well, us from only about 500 metres away from me, which I've uh, which I've just realised. So, um, yeah, moved into the new abode a few weeks ago. And, um, yeah, apparently we're neighbours. So uh, good to have you on, Courtney. Thanks for joining us on Breakpoint again. 
no, thanks for having me, having me on and uh, welcome to uh, West Brunny. What a suburb we live in. It is absolutely fantastic. Uh, many walking spots and uh, little hidden gems around here. Joel, you're missing out. You better move over as well. <laughs> yeah, you, you both sold me. I need to get yeah. on my bike now. Done. Done. Um, but uh, Courtney, we do we do welcome you onto the show, and uh, unfortunately, your time at the Australian will be up very soon. Um, uh, very right. sad to hear that because we love reading your articles and your narratives on on the website and print as well. And um, talk to us before we do get into anything. The the best tournaments or or best moments and most iconic moments that you feel that as though you've covered for the Australian because you've seen many and um, it, it's been a glorious period of uh, of reading your work so we'd love to get your thoughts on your favorite moments working for the company for sure and look thank you and it's uh, uh, yeah t- testing sort of couple of weeks but I'm not the first journalist for this has happened to and it probably won't be the last unfortunately but I'm certainly hoping that there are opportunities that uh, present itself to continue covering tennis and footy in the future, but uh, tennis in particular is obviously something that I love doing. Uh, it's been, I was just thinking back from what you, uh, when you texted me, the Federer-Djokovic final uh, two years ago at Wimbledon sitting courtside for that iconic match, the first tie, first match tiebreaker played at Wimbledon to decide a, a final, obviously, sitting on the edge of your seat wondering which way it will go. It, it was an immense match, I think, in the history of tennis, uh, not just for it being the first but also for what it might mean in the future with, uh, you know, the all-time major list. Um, so that was that was an incredible day in London in every regard. There was an amazing cricket match down the road as well that, uh, you know, went, uh, went over and beyond. Um, thinking back, look, I, ghost, I was the ghostwriter for Andy Murray for – three or so Australian Opens where he was our columnist. And so you would have moments where you would sit with Andy, like basically after matches, I would either walk through the corridors, you could have an hour, you could have five minutes sitting with him after a couple of those heartbreaking losses. You know, we shouldn't forget he made five Australian Open finals, an incredible effort to not get one, but he's coming up against the greats. So that that was, I thought, really intriguing because you got great insight into him. You saw how he interacted with the British players behind the scenes and the Corridors and and the way he celebrated some qualifying wins, the way he got on with other people, he was such you know he had that persona. I think on court we've seen he was so grumpy, but he was such a such a gentleman and so polite. So that you know that was amazing. Uh, it's been wonderful to see Ash Barty sort of doing so well. You know, I had the great joy a couple of years ago of spending time with her and Yvonne Gulagong in Cairns, and you sort of uh, you're driving along these country roads. Her old man asked uh, Yvonne if she'd ever had uh, sugarcane naturally. Uh, she hadn't. So pulled over. He's out in the fields cracking open sugarcane, teaching us how to do it. Ash is laughing. Yvonne's <laughs> laughing. You're sort of sitting there eating sugarcane. It was an amazing sort of uh, experience. Um, just trying to think a couple of others. Uh, oh, well, you know, I courtesy of Nick Curious, I twice went to Tokyo for the Japan Open uh, via the ATP, trying to build a relationship between Nick and, and an Australian journalist at the time where I suppose things are a bit fractious. We got on fine during the week in press conferences, but both times at the end of the week he uh, said, actually, mate, I'm not going to do that. And he won. He actually won a Japan Open on one of the occasions oh. and went pretty well. And I go, no, it was, no, it was actually no skin off my nose because I'm going, I've had a great week in Japan as it is. Tokyo is an amazing city to go to. I saw enough of it. And each year on, if you don't want to talk to a journalist, you don't have to. It doesn't actually worry me either way. It's just it was good to get to Japan to do it. Very surreal that he didn't actually end up agreeing to come to the party in the interview, but that was fine. And I guess the weirdest one probably was Serena Williams winning the uh, US Open in 2012. I was sitting in a diner on the upper uh, Upper East Side about midnight, half past 12, writing the story for the next for Monday's paper, sort of like in depth about what it meant for Serena, where where she was at, and the text, so I got a text message from home and then you looked at Twitter and there were some messages starting to come through on Twitter about a, a, an Australian footballer who had fallen off the roof in Las Vegas and was and it was unwell. And so, you know, it turned out to be the really unfortunate story with uh, John McCarthy, the Port Adelaide footballer. But basically as a journalist on the ground in New York at the time, it meant that, you know, on the phone to my editor, can you get there? Yep, I can get there. You, you sort of call airlines straight away, book a flight, race to my apartment in the middle of the night, uh, sort of, uh, you know, grab my bags, was on a train out to uh, 
train out to JFK on a flight to Dulles through Washington and landed in Vegas by 9am. So you sort of went through all the way through. And if you thought about, you know, I probably had a bit of a go. I had a good night out on a Friday night after the US Open uh, semis <laughs> as well. So you sort of hadn't had a lot of sleep. Land in Las Vegas, um, you know, work an entirety of the day. I remember at one stage, yeah, you're walking through a casino trying to track down where the footballers had been, where, where John had unfortunately sort of his last sort of hours and looked up and Andy Murray's about to win the US Open. And I was so happy for Andy because, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been the ghostwriter for him. You'd know that he'd, you know, he'd had that great Wimbledon sort of uh, success in the Olympics a little earlier, but he hadn't had a grand slam to his name at that stage. So that was the most surreal. But it's been and, – and finally, John Millman knocking off Federer at the US Open. So good. Unbelievable. Yeah. Stifling, so hot. And and then he and, – and just the way John was – John's just such a gent. And what he does uh, after matches, he'll always give the Australian print media extra time. He was fantastic to deal with. It was, uh, you know, a wonderful night. And, and great to see him have that that sort of moment in his career. Yeah, he's an absolute gem, Johnny. Love him, Courtney, so much. Um, I think I speak for Val as well. But um, like, I, I mean, you've had so much experience in in the industry, and um, I couldn't think of a better person to to ask this question because um, you've no doubt seen um, that obviously that uh, the relationship between the press and players has been in the spotlight a bit with um, Naomi Osaka um, and everything yes. that happened there and. Um, like just with all the experiences that you've had and, and uh, I guess the the amount of uh, like the intricate experiences that you've had this, with some of these players like Andy Murray, um, going forward, uh, like how do you see the relationship between the press and players? Because it is quite structured, I would say. Um, like do you, do you see it changing because of um, like a, an incident or not an incident, but like a, um, what, what's happened with, with Naomi or is you expect kind of more of the same? It's, it's a really good question and, and clearly it's a fascinating time for, for tennis as it is for other sports. Um, you know, the power of someone like Osaka to be able to use social media to interact directly with fans or to, or to put her message out. Look, no doubt there are athletes who will try and do that uh, and probably try and do that increasingly. I, I do think that that is a very dangerous path in terms of what it takes away from uh, from the understanding and the learnings that, that we can take from tennis players, we can take from other athletes. You want to know what goes on. You, you do want to talk to an athlete after they've had a loss. Now, maybe we can be – certainly there's always room for, for better questions, but I don't think anyone necessarily – well, I know there's gotcha moments in journalism. I've never been one for a – uh, that uh, that doesn't quite grab me. I, I'd rather have a greater understanding and, and try and provide the insight of the perspective as to what happens. So there's been criticism about press conferences, but what I think the criticism of press conferences, what people don't realise, they'll only be following their player in press conferences or some might watch, you know, some may see more than the one or two, but generally it'll be you'll watch the, the press conferences of the, of the player that you're a fan of or, or the player from your nation. What people don't understand is press conferences offer broadcast journalists and television journalists the grabs that they need for their own stories. Print journalists, look, my, my tactic will always be, always be if I have to go into a press conference, and, and I prefer to do my work outside of press conferences, but sometimes you do need a quote from a player. I'd rather try and source it from outside because I guess that's part of the you know part of the, uh, the business as well. You try and get a better understanding from behind closed doors. But there are there are press conferences going on around the Australian Open, around Wimbledon, around any tournament in multiple languages with different audiences around the world. It's not just Naomi Osaka talking to the press. She's not the only one that does it. Every player does it. And, and I do think that there's a there's a role to play. And I really hope that we can find a path through that. I thought it was encouraging that she was in Cincinnati this week and she did do some press conferences. I do think that there was, in that instance specifically, uh, a misunderstanding about what I'm what eventuated, how it unfolded. We, uh, as part of the, look, I'm part of the International Tennis Writers Association uh, on the borders, the Asia Pacific uh, representative. So, you know, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, whoever. And, and we'd had some dialogue back and forth with, with Naomi's agent. I think the first, the, the, the initial statement she put out wasn't well worded. Clearly, it created a fear or what then unfolded was unfortunate, I think, but because I don't think she meant it as specifically 
is what she did. And, and, and then she sort of walked that statement back a little bit, you know, a few days later. Clearly the pressure was, uh, was immense. It's just, you know, it was a really unfortunate situation, but clearly it's what has prompted is much debate, much debate, much discussion about where do we go. I, I do think there's a room for press conferences. I still hope that we have them, uh, but I'm sure we'll see athletes using their own media channels more and more. Well, that's a good thing. I'm not so sure. Look, I personally, I'm not sure. I think uh, I think players need players need the media, like media need the players in terms of growing the sport. And I think it's a give and take relationship, like you said. And I don't think players going via their own social media platforms and their own YouTube channels is the way to go. Um, I, I just think that if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Because look, there are instances where we see players storm out of press conferences. But as you said. We hear the words of Eleanor Preston saying so-and-so is on their way to press room seven at the Australian Open. That many times, it happens every five minutes. It's go, go, go all day. So it's at a point where I think that we can, I think we just need to sort of work out some boundaries and then maybe go from there, sort of on both parts, don't you reckon? Oh, look, look I think there's, there's, there's definitely discussion as to how and what, and you, you put it very well. It's, it's so busy in those first few days that I, I don't think that, we're in a privileged position behind closed door to see actually what goes on and the and the way tournaments unfold, and and, and probably more privileged than even the players themselves because they're only in there for that little small section of time. They don't see the whole broad output. Certainly, fans at home will only see the. Yeah, I think that yeah, you, know, you look at you only have to look at what's happening in terms of uh, press conferences through the coronavirus virus period in Victoria, and there's outrage at journalists asking questions and repeated questions, but. What people are seeing is the way the sausage is made for the first time. These sort of things go on all the time. Like you have to try and, you know, pin down a politician. You have to try and pin down a tennis player sometimes. It's the nature of the business. What you see is a polished, you know, polished outcome with what's in the newspaper or on radio or on television. It does tend to be the, the best of what it is. So it's, you know, it's, it's interesting in that regard. I I would hate to see censorship of questions. There's clearly boundaries in terms of you do not want to broach sexist, racist, you know, bounds. Yeah. It's just a no-brainer. That that is that you know some of the and and there are there have been reprehensible questions. Oh yeah, I'd be reluctant to not be able to ask a player about their form, about what is going on. You should know. Common sense dictates what's what's fair and what's beyond the realms. And and I'm yet to see. Yeah, I think that most the majority, vast vast majority of journalists are responsible. I, I, I know that there are certainly exceptions, and, and that's a shame. But you, you tarnish your reputation so quickly if that's the case as well. So, I think the vast vast majority do the right thing. Yep, agree, and uh, and I think I, I hope one day that we can see. And Jessica Pagula actually tweeted it a couple of weeks ago, saying that she hopes that we can see a tennis style version of Formula One's Drive to Survive. And that's something that I would love to see, the behind-the-scenes action following, you know, maybe 20 players around for a season and seeing how they go because that access is something that many people don't have and and a lot of people don't actually understand the rigours of the tour, do they? So I I think it would be great to see and it would give so much more of a perspective on how challenging the sport can be. No, very good point. And you only have to look at, you think about Ash Barty winning today, and she's been on the road now for 159 days. She's had a couple of little breaks, you know, sneaking down to a village sort of uh, in the south of France for a week or so before the uh, the French Open, which obviously went didn't go so well. Been able to get a bit of time out of the bubble before London, taking breaks, but still 159 days on the road. It's it's just an astonishing, you know, amount of time. I had a chat to Benassi Kokonakis uh, a couple of months ago when he was in Italy, and then he was saying he and Balti that they're, they're their break was basically playing some PlayStation with each other. I remember talking to Tennis Australia made a point going back a few years ago of trying to introduce a policy for their players, at least those that they were still supporting, to do almost a presentation about every city they'd been to because they found, they realised that there were players that were playing at the French Open who had never been to the who had never seen the Eiffel Tower, who had never been to the Trocadero, who had never experienced parts of the city. Of France, they were basically flying in, playing at Roland Garros, back and forward between the courts, and having no cultural understanding of the actual city themselves. And they realised we need to make this a little broader. You actually have to have life experiences outside the hotel room and the tennis courts. So it's you know it's an interesting time, and I 
you know, people won't realise that players, it's not as glamorous as what, you know, travelling the world is not as glamorous as what it sounds for a lot of players. Certainly Nick, you know, we, we see Nick hates it. Like Nick really struggles with elements of it. So, you know, uh, yeah, uh, one of those programs would be wonderful. I think it would be spectacular if, we, if, if it was able to be produced. Yeah, for sure. That that, that sounds incredible. And uh, many picturesque places in the US, which is where we head at this part of the season. And um, obviously, uh, Ash Barty, Courtney, we're seeing her in great form again after a bit of a, uh, a blip in, in Tokyo. But uh, she just looks back to her best, really. Didn't lose a set um, in, in Cincinnati. And what's even better, in front of crowds. It's great. Yeah, to see her reaction afterwards, and, this, and there was a really good interview with uh, the WTA Insider, uh, which you know, went at depth about how much she enjoyed playing back in front of crowds. How she loved hearing from the uh, you know from young boys saying, "God, it's cool to watch Ash Barty play." They clearly had a good eye because she uh, played superb, as I'm sure you guys have discussed. Um, I went back through it today. I think it's her it's her most dominant tournament. So she's gone through one other of her 13 titles without dropping a set in Birmingham a couple of years ago when she went to number one in the world. But I think she dropped 34 games on that occasion. She only dropped 29 for the week. So, you know, astonishing sort of performance. Uh, I remember Craig Tiley just after she won Wimbledon. Uh, you know, so she's got the grass, the grass court major, the, the clay court title. He said that he always thought her first major would be on hard court. He thought it's still the surface that suited her the best because... She boasted such an array of weapons and moved so well. So clearly, it's not a surprise she's won those, you know, won the Miami Open twice, uh, the WTA tour finals on uh, on hard courts as well. To see her win in Cincinnati like she did, she's a Queenslander. She should love and revel in the humidity and the heat. Fingers crossed it all goes well for her in New York. She's got the doubles title there, you know, a, a few years back, but uh, yet to yet to pull it off in the singles. I think fourth round a couple of years ago, I was there for that. She was very flat, but that was, again, probably, you know, it would have been a big few months, French Open win, world number one, you know, the expectations, et cetera. She was a little flat in New York that year, but there's no reason to think that it won't suit her. And looking ahead to the men's, Courtney, it's it poses such an interesting narrative, I think, with, with what is to come. Does Novak get that calendar Grand Slam or... Does Alexander Zverev actually continue this run of form and go one better at the US Open? And then you've got Daniel Medvedev, who is in play for the world number one ranking when we get to Flushing Meadows. So there's so many little different storylines that are going to occur in the men's draw. And this is probably the first time that we've seen it in a very long time when two of the big three won't be there. And we're going to see there's such, I guess, sort of anticipation about the men's draw at Flushing Meadows, which, again, we haven't seen for a while. Oh, I think it's going to be fascinating. It, it, you know, just simply that pursuit of history from Novak, you know, trying to join Don Budge and, uh, and Rob Laver is calendar year Grand Slam. It's, uh, yeah, if, if he was able to do it, it would be an immense achievement. Um, certainly it's an unorthodox preparation. I went back through it uh, a week or so ago when he said he wouldn't, when he, when he pulled out of uh, the Rogers Cup and then out of Cincinnati and, and went back and, Dating back to active players, so all the way back to uh, Roddick in 2003, I think it was, where he won his US Open. Of active players, no one has won the US Open without playing at least one of the two major leading events since that time. So so, so he's trying to create history in that regard, got well, recent history in that regard, while also, you know, joining Labor as the Open Era Grand Slam winner. So... Fascinating. I, you know, clearly you needed to freshen up uh, after what happened in Tokyo, where you know, uh, you know, I was criticised by some certain certain fans on uh, Twitter a couple of weeks ago for suggesting he'd overextended himself uh, in Tokyo. I don't think there'd be many people uh, with a you know with a, a rational take on that that wouldn't think he had overextended himself in that regard. But his form has been incredible. Really, he got himself out of a couple of holes, obviously in. Uh, in Australia and, uh, and 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 in other majors, but clearly the man to beat. But you're right, so Rev has been outstanding. Finalist last year, you know, losing that tiebreaker to team in the in the fifth set, um, and it's only been a matter of time that he takes the next step. I think with uh, Zarev being able to back up the Olympics, being able to back up a really tough win, uh, you know, two day a, a day ago against the surpass to get over the top uh, and win. 
with ease against uh, Rublev today, I thought was a very strong performance. So I think he's, you know, he and Medvedev are clearly second line in terms of uh, favouritism. After that, uh, look, I'm not sure. Rublev took a big step forward this week in terms of beating Medvedev, but wasn't able to back it up in the final. You know, he was outplayed, you know, quite comprehensively. So I do wonder if it's only a three-man you know, if there are only three men that are capable of winning it, I'm not so sure it's that wide in terms of who can actually win it because I think the form line suggests that... Oh, and Sitsipas, I think, is clearly the other obvious candidate. So maybe three or four men that can win it, in my view. I'd be... What do you guys think in that regard? Well, I think it's not really changing of having the big three or big four there. I do agree with you. I think it is only <laughs> going to be three or four men that can win it. But yeah. I think that the evenness amongst the competition could be very different in terms of how we've seen the US Open in the past when it has been dominated by Roger, Rafa, Novak and Andy to an extent. But it, it is exciting. And, and I think if we see Tsitsipas come up against Novak, there's going to be bad blood on Tsitsipas's hand because he wants to re- rectify what happened at Roland Garros. Zverev wants yep. to continue the edge that he's kind of got over Novak after the Olympics and, and Medvedev will want to rectify what happened at the Oz Open. So it, it's it's one that I'm I'm really keen to see. And Joel, I'm not sure what your thoughts are, but it's interesting. It is interesting. And I mean, the obvious thing is to just look at Novak and go, yeah, Novak. Yeah. But I, I really think that this is Alex Verov's time because obviously we saw last year he came so close, but he is just in a really great vein of form at the moment, winning since he winning gold in Tokyo. And I am with... With team out, with Federer out, Nadal out, I just think that this is his time. If ever he's going to strike, he strikes while the iron's hot, and it's now. And it's an interesting one that uh, you know, with Novak, he's only like it's he's won there three times, so that's an astonishing feat in his own. But it is still his worst performance slam if you break it down in terms of where where his successes have come at. It doesn't quite suit him as well, clearly, as what uh, the Australian Open does. You know, the pace of the Courts certainly the heat and humidity are brutal. It's I, lo- I love the, the US Open. It's, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful event. The, with, with the crowds back, I think it'll be spectacular. It's just a, a hot bed of uh, energy and uh, and passion and, and different smells. It's so steamy and hot during the day. At night, when you hear the trains sort of rumbling past, uh, yeah, out towards Long Island, it's uh, it's 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 a really interesting dynamic there. But um, it hasn't necessarily been his best in the past. Three three major wins is still astonishing, clearly. So so I, I do wonder, the first week will be fascinating. You wouldn't want to see him coming up against, uh, you know, a, a tricky tricky opponent in the first couple of weeks, if you're, the first couple of rounds if you're a Novak fan. No, you definitely wouldn't. And uh, I think this is going to be the Grand Slam that we need, having full crowds. And it's something that everybody is really excited about in tennis world, in the tennis world. And for sure. Courtney, congratulations on everything that you've done at The Australian. You have been an absolute pioneer for tennis journalists in this country and covering the game. And you've lived out so many people's dreams of, of, of going overseas and, um, and covering the sport that we all love. And you've done it to absolute perfection. And we couldn't, we couldn't, well, there's there's no superlatives for how good you are, mate, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we do see you uh, penning some more pieces uh, in tennis and footy in the years to come, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show tonight, and uh, thank you very much for joining us. No, that's really really kind, guys, and I'm very glad that you uh, you're both pursuing this project and, and doing well, and uh, looking forward to uh, being a guest in years to come. Hopefully, uh, different vehicle for me, but uh, I'll be looking forward to it. You don't even have to ask. Just tell us you're coming on and uh, and we'll have you on easily. No worries, mate. Have a good night and thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Courtney Walsh there joining us on the show. Jeez, he's good, Joel. He's one of the best in the land, as I said, and um, hopefully we can see him penning many more pieces for, for any different publication. It's um, it, It'll just be a privilege to read the words that he notes down. Yeah, hopefully he's not lost uh, to... To the, well, to the media, firstly, and then secondly, um, to tennis, because uh, yeah, I mean, he's been he's been uh, an incredible uh, representative of of the sport, um, and we've got we're we're lucky enough to have a few of them in Australia. Courtney, uh, our very good friend uh, Brett Phillips, just to name two. So, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully we see more of him. And he's been great to us as well. He really has and given us a lot of time and day on this show. So great uh, great to have him as part of it again tonight. But um, look, Joel, uh, we, we did discuss a little bit of it with Courtney, but 
the the men's narrative, I guess, at the U.S. Open uh, with after what's happened in the lead-in, I think is is something that it, it it's intriguing. It really is intriguing because in Canada we saw Daniel Medvedev with a pretty solid week. He had an epic uh, with Hubert Hercatch in the um in the quarterfinals after um Hercatch beat him at Wimbledon, so a little bit of revenge there. But then um taking down Riley Opelka in the final and and he looked. He looked dominant. He looked very good. And watching him against James Duckworth pretty closely that day, he was just in cruise control the entire match. So you see what he's been able to conjure up. Very surprised that he lost to Andre Rublev in Cincinnati and Rublev getting through to another Masters final. And then you've got Stefanot Tsitsipas and you've got Alexander Zverev who are all putting together fine a fine body of work this season. And then there's Novak. We haven't seen anything of him in this U.S. period, we don't know what to expect. Rafa's gone; he's not playing. Rogers pulled out of the rest of the year. What do we think is going to happen? And and if we had to put our, if if you had to put your mind or if you had to put your finger on someone right now and say he's winning, who would it be? Because I don't okay. think it's as clear cut. You think it's that clear cut? It's it's hard not to say Novak. It like, is. <laughs> I'm trying I mean, to put I a spin like, on it, but I think Novak as well. Yeah, I was I mean, trying I, to build I the think, suspense. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, I think, yeah. Let's let's face it, Novak's. I think earned the right yeah. to be that guy where you go into a tournament and just be like, he's winning. Um, but I think, like I said with Courtney, I think this is this is the time for Alexander Zverev. He came so close against Domini team last year. The most bizarre match of history. He, yeah, and he just he just could not quite close it out. Not exactly and right. Going into going into this US Open, he's won gold in Tokyo. He's won in Cincinnati, and he's looking really really good. So, I think he's probably the guy that's going to challenge him. And with such a decimated field up the top of the ATP. Um, with with Rafa, with Roger Federer, with Dominic Team not there, you'd have to say it's him. Maybe with with Danil, maybe the I'm going to go with Danil being the third best guy, but I think it's 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 Alex Alex's time to challenge Novak here. I do agree, and I think it could be those two, and it could be down to those two to to win it. But Daniel Medvedev still has a lot to play for, as we said with Courtney, that the number one ranking is still on the line, um, which he would want to get. And I hope he gets it because I did predict that he would get it at some point this year. So I'm really hoping that he can go through and and pinch it. But yeah, look, it's going to be a good tournament. It's going to be great with crowds. I'm excited to see what happens in the women's draw. Um, we touched on Osaka with um, with Courtney as well. I hope we can see her do well because I would love to see her and Ash Barty play each other when they are at the peak of their powers. And they both, well, Osaka not as much recently, but look, mentally, I'm not sure how she's going to go. So it is going to be interesting. The messaging isn't as mixed as it was um, back a few weeks ago, which is starting to sort of, get better in terms of the mm. cover shoots and everything and, and all that sort of stuff that I wasn't a massive fan of. And I didn't really like the excuse that it was shot before, before she said what she said at the French open, but because if she'd been suffering from, from these things since the 2018 U S open, I thought then, you know, maybe getting yourself out of the public eye a little bit more could help, but look, each of their own in that situation, that was just my, my two cents on it, but hopefully she can come out of it because mental health is such a, it's such a, devastating thing and we're seeing it everywhere at the moment that mental health is is declining in this COVID time so hopefully that we can um we can get through and and hopefully Naomi can come over this and 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 happy and come out the other side of it in a good way but moving to Winston-Salem at the moment Nick Kyrgios was supposed to play Andy Murray this morning Joel but pulled out with a knee injury putting his US Open in jeopardy and whether he will play we don't know his body just hasn't been able to cope with the rigors of returning to the tour this year and mm. probably questions how much work he is doing off the court which is a shame because he is putting bums on seats uh, in tennis and the crowd is coming back so they'd be robbed of a really good opportunity to see Nick Kyrgios in action and the Americans do love him over there but Noah Rubin replaced him in the draw and this is where it gets frustrating because tennis, we know there's there's such a vast gap between the best the, the best players in the world 
and the players ranked in the thousands that aren't earning as much money. The, the, the pay gap is ridiculous. It's astronomical. The lucky loser, replacing a player who has withdrawn on site, shall receive the final round qualifying prize money plus money earned in the main draw minus the prize money paid to withdra- the withdrawing player. So Nick Kyrgios still gets most of his prize money. And Noah Rubin comes in. Yeah. Uh, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, so, and, and Noah Rubin's come out on Twitter and and retweeted this tweet from at Anna K underscore forever. So Anna Kornikova, I, I assume. But the ATP rulebook suggests that Kyrgios gets to keep his prize money and Noah Rubin will only receive the final qualifying round prize money with his loss to Murray. He's played four sets of tennis in one day. Mm. Yeah. It, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, does it? Um, in this day and age. Yeah. Look, I cannot wait for the next episode of Behind the Racket. It's going to be oh. great. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what Noah says. Ne- neither can I, because it just, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Because you, you look at what, what's come out in the media and especially last year, the criticism of the ATP was damning in terms of how they handled the pandemic and how things have been handled even post the pandemic. And it's, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's really, really frustrating to see that players who are still struggling to make it and, and trying to get themselves into a top 100 position just can't quite get there. And it's disappointing to see Noah Rubin having to go through that, considering Nick Kyrgios is being looked after by a lot of other things, and he he's still making his money through endorsements that we see on billboards around around the country and see Swiss Kia, whatever Kyrgios is on there. He's, he's becoming <laughs> yep. a poster boy himself, so it is disappointing to see, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, he's just uh, disappointing is the, the perfect word. Yep. Really, um, oh, I just Val, I just I want to see him do well, but uh, there's just always something amiss. It's uh, it's frustrating. Yeah, it is, and, really and frustrating. Look, I've had this conversation with with a lot of people, and you and I have discussed it at length oof, to an infinite amount. But when I d- I don't know, I just don't know, and I don't think we're going to see it. He's 26 years old now. We've been talking about this since 2014, whether he would be able to crack through and win a slam. Yeah. I thought, yeah, it so would the have moment's probably, probably passed now. Back then, I probably would have thought it had come, it'd have come by now, but it hasn't. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. no, I think I think the moment's passed. I think I so. Think it's passed now, and hopefully he can work on his body, and hopefully the preseason he can do the rehab that he needs to do. But he could be one of those players that's just curtailed by injury or just doesn't do enough he's just there pottering around a few good results here and there and 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 that's all she wrote really because that's what it seems yeah. like it's going to be starting to really look like that yep. and uh honestly if uh if if we had a dollar for every time we said it's a shame about nick Curios, i don't think we would actually need to work ever again no because we'd have a lot of money we'd have lots of dollars i know god why can't the world work like that, Joel? Yeah, I wish it could. Yeah, me too. But <laughs> look, this is a good way that the world works because it's time for our favourite segment and and it is the Benoit of the week and we, we celebrate this man. And he had a really good week in Cincinnati last week, beat Shapovalov and he's in the quarter. he made the quarterfinals before losing to Andre Rublev. Um, and look, it was a great interview and he said that he loves the crowds because he just wants to go out with people and have fun. <laughs> yeah, pretty standard Benoit, wasn't it, Val? Good to see was... him back in uh, in fine form where we want him to be, enjoying himself and in the quarters. But um, should we award our award for the week? I think we should. It's been, it's been a while since we've – I don't think we've actually tallied it like we did last year, so we actually need to go back and – oh, I need to do that and go back and listen to who oh. actually is leading the Benoit of the year. It is Benoit, I know that. Um, so that's that's at least something. <laughs> sure is. Um, he's had about three or four nominations. But um, Joel, who is it this week? Yeah, this week we're going to give it to uh, a lady who we've already chatted a bit about on the show, Camilla Georgie. Now, uh, yeah. What, what, we, a, what, yeah. A, what a couple of weeks it has been. 
what a couple of weeks. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's probably the first time in the history of Breakpoint Podcast that she's kind of come up in conversations in this way. Um, in a positive light. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> so many times previously we've been either talking about Silvio or, um, you know, she's gone out and she's, you know, smacked 15 double faults in a roll or something. Um, and she's just done something bizarre. But, um, yeah, she's had a good couple of weeks. So, uh, well done, Camilla. You know, we started this show six years ago. And this is the first time she's come out in a positive light because of just sheer <laughs> the sheer week and the quality of the week that yeah. she had because there's always been one quality match and then all of a sudden she'll lose to the world number 400 six love, six three. So fantastic effort from Camilla Georgie. We hope that that can continue. I'm not sure it will because we, we thought Monica Puig would continue after the 2016 Olympics and that just hasn't happened, whether it be form or injury. So she's on the way back now, but... Hopefully we can see her do well too, but uh, it's it's just it's absolutely fantastic that we finally seen Camilla do uh, do so well. But Joel, it has been a pleasure, my friend, and I can't wait to talk more tennis over the next few weeks with the U.S. Open uh, right upon us and um, bringing me back to lockdown last year, where you and I would just be uh, be online and, and talk everything U.S. Open and yeah, excited yep. about it, but also um, yeah, also hoping that um, everybody stays safe out there. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, stay safe, everyone that's listening. Get vaccinated, um, and uh, before we know it, we'll uh, we'll be like the US Open. We'll have crowds back at the tennis, and uh, I cannot wait for that. Me either, Joel. And thank you very much for your efforts today. It's been an absolute pleasure sitting across from you talking all things tennis. See you soon, mate. Joel Frucci there, and uh, remember you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, Instagram Breakpoint podcast and Facebook. You can like us there as well. Just search Breakpoint Podcast and subscribe on all your favorite podcast apps. We are there, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor. You can subscribe um, via our new streaming service there. And um, yeah, we're really excited by that. They, uh, they're giving us a lot more avenues. So any podcast app that you've got, um, we are on there. So really looking forward to hearing all your thoughts on the show. Subscribe, follow, comment, whatever you need to do. It's been Val Ferbo and Joel Frucci talking all things tennis. We'll catch you next week.